Good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Emmaus. If it's your first time, I'm glad you're here and uh, hoping that you are thoroughly enjoying those mustard yellow pews. What a gift they are from God above. Thank you, Father, for this miracle. If you did not know, this property was given to us for free. And sometimes I just got to be reminded of the favor of the Lord. And uh, I just wanted to share that this morning because it's a huge miracle and blessing. Um, so to that end, welcome. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus, and I'm thrilled that you have joined us. Let us jump into the Bible, okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. As always, would love to get you a Bible if you do not have one, so you don't always have to use version on your phone. If you're there, say there. Okay, we'll wait a couple seconds. <laughs> Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. If you're there, say there. Praise God. All right. Here we go. This is the word of the Lord. Spoken, well, not yet. Hold on a second. <laughs> the culture making in this place is thick. I love it. All the liturgical folks are like, please, please, please. Thanks be to God. You know? <laughs> okay, here we Hear the word of the Lord. All right. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can... Somebody say, we can. Come on. We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Just sit in that for a second. We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death... Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Keep in mind, the most holy place was reserved only for the chief high priest once a year for sacrifice. And now we can, all of us, enter the most holy place with confidence and boldness because of the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty conscience, or for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. 
Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. Why? Because he has. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. Verse 24 and 25, this is where we're going to zoom in today. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together. Underline that if you can, if you're taking notes. As some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we know in faith that you are among us, that your presence is here. Would you begin to speak now to this people and to this community? Open our eyes and our mind and our heart to receive whatever it is you have to share today. We love you. We're grateful for you. And I'm believing you're going to change some people today. I'm believing it in faith. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let me first say, what a joy it was last week to celebrate in the sacrament of baptism. Was it not? What a joy. What a moment to be able to see declaration of new life, to see a moment where individuals are welcomed into the family of God as devoted followers of Jesus. Now, that water was frigid, let me say, but it was certainly a joy. Today is the final Sunday in Lent. Anybody glad? I was talking to someone uh, a couple days ago, and they said to me, I am so done with Lent. And I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly why we need Jesus. Because I'm done with the human predicament. I'm done with human brokenness. I think we all are, to some degree. But today is the last day of Lent. It's Palm Sunday, as Anderson mentioned, representative of the triumphal entry of Jesus, heading into what is commonly known as Holy Week, where palm branches were waved as Jesus the Messiah comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a representation of victory and peace, entering into the city of peace, that being Jerusalem, leading only to a few days of high highs and the ultimate low, death on a cross. And we will journey this week. I would encourage you to journey this week ever so slowly throughout the final week of Jesus and the narrative of the passion. But we do enter into next week, the season that is Easter. Not the day that is Easter, but the season that is Easter, a season of celebration around resurrection. And I am very excited. Now, there is much debate. I've already heard some of you guys talking around when Lent actually ends. I've heard some of you bantering in side conversations regarding when Lent actually ends. Now, for us, in our community, 
given that we follow what's called the Gregorian calendar, Lent ends at sundown on Monday Thursday. So Lent comes to a close Monday Thursday, commemorating the Last Supper and the washing of the disciples' feet. So if you're trying to figure out when you can watch Netflix again, or when you can have some dessert in Jesus' name, Thursday evening is your moment. Um, I am looking forward to next week together and celebrating Easter as a community. I think it will be a phenomenal time together. Uh, I love the love feast practice, being able to come together before the gathering and eat. What What a wonderful time that will be, as well as this really neat Stations of the Cross installation happening Friday night at 7 highly encourage you to make that part of your weekend. I think it really brings the whole of Easter into completion to to make sure that you are participating in Good Friday and the crucifixion narrative. So a lot going on, but I'm looking forward to it. Now, today is the final installment of our One Another Lenten teaching series that we have been in over the last few weeks. Have you guys enjoyed this teaching series? Yeah, you can be honest. Some of you are like, I hated it. It's been terrible. (laughs) Right? Um, I don't know. I've enjoyed it. But um, given the state of loneliness, isolation, social fragmentation, and hyper-individualism in our Western world, we have come to the conclusion that we utterly need one another. That we need a sense of community. And that the most compelling mark of the early church, the early followers of the way, other than the resurrection itself, was how they embodied a sense of togetherness, a sense of camaraderie, a sense of fellowship, a sense of community, a sense of family. Keep in mind today, as we have said, We aren't just fans of Jesus going, yeah, Jesus, go knock him dead, buddy. You got it. We're not just followers of Jesus who just obey his teachings. Both of these are true, but we are also a part of Jesus's family. We are part of Jesus's family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus because he came to establish a family. Jesus' final prayer in John 17, known as the High Priestly Prayer, reveals this as one of the deepest desires of his heart, in particular for oneness, for unity, and for togetherness as a family in order that the world may believe that the Father sent him. How we live together is the greatest evangelistic tool we have based on the words of Jesus. It is meant to be compelling and captivating to the world around us. It is aching for a sense of belonging, a sense of togetherness, and a sense of community. His urge to love one another echoes throughout the entirety of the New Testament. It's all throughout. And so we know that we need one another. We know he's calling us to love one another, but I think we need to know how to love one another. 
We need to know how to do community. We need to know the prescriptive vision that God has for us by way of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to live together as a compelling alternative witness in a world that desperately needs hope and love, goodness, mercy, beauty, and justice. And we see clear commands of how to do this sprinkled throughout the 60-some one-anothers of the writings in the early church. And threaded throughout these teachings on how to do life together is also at least two types of love. In the ancient world, there are multiple expressions of love. Now, in our time, love means a lot of things, does it not? My wife loves Freddy's. You know, right, kind of, sort of, you know, it's more like a desire, you know. Um, I love my little girl. I love my wife. I love this community. We love one another. Various ways of expressing love. And the ancient world knew this. And in the New Testament, there's at least two contexts of love. Agape is the most known expression of love. It's a Greek word translated as love. And it means sacrificial love. Benevolence or extending goodness to another for their well-being. And this is obviously required of the people of God and necessary, but agape can and is extended to another without any reciprocity or mutuality. You can love someone and there not be any sort of reciprocity or mutual connection. This is required But, as we have talked about, the idea of one another is about mutuality and interdependence. The Greek word is alelon, and it is all about mutuality, reciprocity, and interdependence. And agape actually doesn't require mutuality or interdependence. But, we are a people connected to one another. We're not dependent on one another. We're not independent from another, but we are interdependent. So what does this mean? The second most common form of love in the New Testament is a word that is Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Anybody been to Philly before? Yeah. The city of what? Brotherly love. Interdependent love is called, in the Greek, Philadelphia. It's the noun form, or the verb, which is phileo, love, phileo. It connotes this idea of relational connectedness and familial affection. It is reciprocal. It's mutual. It's interdependent. It is tied to the idea of physical touch, proximity, and personal attachment. Whoever you have a personal attachment with, you are experiencing to some degree a level of Philadelphia or phileo. Think of a hug or kiss or just the sense of a warm embrace. I think back to... uh, Santa Claus 3. Come on, Santa Claus. Christmas in, what is it, April now? Yes, April 2nd. Christmas in April. And uh, 
the Martin Short character, you know, is playing Jack Frost. And at the end of the movie, the little girl that's Tim Allen's, like, Lucy, relative, yes, Lucy, thank you. Um, Lucy gives Jack Frost this hug, and it just, like, warms him to the point where he melts, essentially. This is a display of Philadelphia, of phileo. It is deeply connected to physical touch, warmth, and an embrace. And phileo was a visible sign and attribute of one another in the early church. It's everywhere. So when we do the passing of the peace every single Sunday morning, my hope is that we are extending phileo to one another. We're extending Philadelphia. This notion appears at least six times in the noun form and 25 times in the verb form throughout the New Testament. And it occurs often in Peter's letters. Peter's letters. Now, we want to see the word love, but like I said, underneath it in the Greek, there are different words, agape and phileo. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. And underneath this is this notion of phileo. We don't just need agape in our community. We also must display phileo, love. Check this out from the theologian Thomas J. Ord. Individuals who express phileo, it's phileo and phileo go back and forth, act in ways to enhance the well-being of those with whom they enjoy ongoing relations. Phileo expressions require pro-social relations. Keep in mind, agape doesn't require pro-social relations. Phileo does. Neither agape nor eros stress the communal relations inherent in it in flourishing societies and personal interaction. Phileo, or phileo, however, reminds us that the work to attain well-being, which is the core of love, requires a community of at least two. It is one thing to be loved. It is another thing to be liked. It is one thing to be served. It is another thing to be enjoyed. It is one thing to be cared for. It is another thing to be touched. We need phileo if we are going to see the fullness of one another expressed in our community. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul gives one of those awkward commands that we don't know what to do with in our modern era. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Some of you had a crush in high school and you're like, I'm about to greet you. <laughs> in the name of the Lord Jesus, with a holy kiss. And she said, get behind me, Satan. Right? We don't know what to do with this. So I like Eugene Peterson's translation in the message where he says, greet one another with a holy embrace. Now, greeting another with a holy kiss is still very common across the world. Very common. But the idea underneath it is to greet one another with this holy embrace, expressing phileo love. This is a command, by the way. Not a suggestion. Not a good idea. Not a thoughtful concept. 
but a command to the early church in Corinth. Greet one another with a holy embrace. There is something utterly meaningful about a hug. I've mentioned this before, that some of the folks in our community are really good huggers. Anybody a hugger? Like you're just like, honestly, I'm a hugger. Just want you guys to know. Okay, look around. Be aware of all the hands that just went up. But have you ever, those of you who are huggers, have you ever given a hug or tried to give a hug and the other person was not feeling it and it was not reciprocated? Yeah. It is an awkward experience. Someone stands like this. It took my wife dating me for like three years to hug me front ways. My wife's a side hugger. She's like, what's up? You good? Okay. I'm like, come here, girl. <laughs> it's awkward. Or have you ever gotten a hug and you just felt like there wasn't mutuality? Like This is not... This is not both of us here. This is one person. This is a one-way show. But then there are the people who hug you, and you're like, can you please just keep it right here? Please. First off, you smell good. Thank you. Um, second off, you're really warm. And uh, third off, I just appreciate you. Some of us have grandmas like that. You're like, Grandma, please don't stop hugging me. <laughs> Come here, sugar. Let me give you a... Like, I melt, Okay. We need to be a community subversively willing to hug one another. I know it's awkward for some of us, but you can give a little side hug, give a little bump, but physical touch makes a huge difference. Check this out. Studies have shown that we need, as people, as humans, around 8 to 10 meaningful touches a day to maintain emotional health and well-being. Forbes magazine did an article entitled, Are You Getting Enough Hugs? And in the article, it listed four reasons why humans need hugs or phileo love. Let's walk through them today because you all want practical steps for everyday life, right? First reason why humans need hugs, because hugs strengthen your immune system and balance your body. Let me read a snippet from this piece. A hug results in some pressure on your sternum, which then stimulates the thymus gland, which then regulates and balances the body's production of white blood cells, which keeps you healthy. Hugs help increase circulation and help balance our sympathetic fight-flight-freeze and parasympathetic rest-and-digest nervous systems. Strengthening your immune system. You know why we're all sick? We haven't had enough hugs. People are miserable because they haven't had enough hugs. This is not even the Bible. This is Forbes magazine. Second thing, since you're enjoying this, let's keep it going. Hugs increase your feelings of safety and security. Hugs emotionally feed us. They help us to remember that we're not alone. They help us feel more trust with others. 
You ever notice how relaxed you feel after a juicy hug? Not sure why the word juicy is in there. I'm just reading. Just reading. Hugs remind us that we're with others. And together we can face any challenge. Some of you are like, I don't want a juicy hug. (laughs) I want a dry hug. Dry. Okay. Number three. Hugs increase your feelings of belonging. Hugs boost oxytocin levels, which heal feelings of loneliness, isolation, and anger. Hugging is a shared experience. It's mutual. You're both giving and receiving affection. Philadelphia. Phileo. One another. The fourth thing is that hugs increase your feelings of self-esteem, being seen, and self-love. One last little snippet. Extended hugging boosts your serotonin levels, causing you to feel happy and more positive emotions overall. When you see another person look at you with kindness and affection, you remember that you're loved, just like you did as a child when your parents looked at you and acknowledged you were here and they were happy that you were here. Phileo love, not just agape. So the undergirding call and the original command in terms of one another is to love one another. We get that. It's been shown that it isn't just extending the good of another, but it is mutually extending ourselves toward one another in affection and enjoyment. Why is this? Because when life is hard, we need one another in close physical proximity. In your hardest moments, I'm curious to know who have you called to meet up with? Who have you gone to? It's interesting how when you're 13 years old, you can't stand your parents until life gets hard. You get in a bind, you calling mom or dad. We need each other, and we need the ones we can trust. Phileo, by the way, can't be produced in a digital space or world. You cannot be touched across the screen. If anything, it might cause you to have a deeper longing to be in physical proximity. You ever FaceTime someone across the world or across the country, and it only makes you want to be in person with them that much more. Why? Human beings are meant to be in physical proximity, experiencing phileo love. Now, we have looked at, throughout the series, four one another commands across the New Testament. Marks of life together, helping us to navigate how we are to live as a family and as a community. We obviously looked at loving one another as the base. But then we looked at honoring one another, talking about contempt. Did you guys enjoy that teaching on honor and contempt? I've heard a lot of conversations about that on the side. And then Paula did a fantastic job talking about the necessity of speaking truth to one another in love. And then Jay approached a very challenging topic for us modern individuals in 2023, talking about what it means to submit to one another. 
All of these practices, by the way, subvert the dominant ways interpersonal relationships are played out in our everyday life. But keep in mind the practical nature of all of these and how few we actually practice well. Like, how well are you at speaking truth to another in love? How well are you at honoring another? How well do you do at submitting to one another? But here's the thing. These aren't spiritual gifts. They're not unique to you and your personality type or your archetype or your Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs. They're not unique to your personality. They are a command and are commands for all of us. Do not ever let your personality get in the way of a command from the teaching of Jesus or the New Testament. They're not suggestions based on personality types. It might be harder for some of us and might be easier for some of us, but that doesn't mean that we don't do it. These are commands for all of us. And today we will close with our two final one another's from Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews, we find a group of Jewish Christians, most scholars believe to be, facing social tension, pressure, and persecution in the shadows of the Roman emperor Nero. And many are falling away. They're giving up. They're staying isolated. They're afraid and flat out discouraged. It's the audience. It's the context for the folks in the book of Hebrews. So the writer goes on this journey, elevating the centrality of Jesus and shares with us that in light of being able to draw near to the presence of God as a community, Because of Jesus, he calls us to a couple of things and calls the audience to a couple of things. Motivate one another and encourage one another. I read 19 through 23 in Hebrews chapter 10 because that is the indicative. That is the why we motivate and encourage. Because of what Jesus has accomplished as a great high priest. And because we can draw near to the presence of God as a community, we are able to motivate one another and encourage one another. Verse 24, let's read it again. Let us think of ways. Some translations say, let us consider. Let us consider. Let us brainstorm ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Notice here that the motivation is to act. The motivation is to behave. There's motivation to change. There's motivation to work at. There's motivation to move towards something. Why? Because motivation requires some sort of goal that you probably haven't reached yet. Some of you had to have motivation to get out of the bed this morning. 
Some of us need extra motivation to go to the gym. Anybody here need just, you need a lot of motivation to go to the gym. That's me. And I'm being honest. Confession. Some of you guys are like, I'm not going to raise my hand that high. Some of us need motivation. Going to work tomorrow. Some of you got some jobs. I don't know how you're still there, to be honest. But you need some motivation to get up. Something beyond yourself that motivates you, that gets you going. There is a reason to act. Now, this word motivate is translated in a lot of different ways. Some translations use words like stimulate, provoke, spark, stir up, or even spur on. But check this out. The Greek word for motivate comes from the same word family as to irritate or to sharpen. So we could literally read verse 24. Let us think of ways to irritate one another to acts of love and good works. Let let us consider ways to sharpen one another to acts of love and good works. I love this from uh, Pastor Charlie Dates. He's a pastor and and scholar in Chicago. Uh, He was doing a teaching series on this passage. I thought this was really good. He says, coming to church is meant to rub you the wrong way. If you leave today rubbed the wrong way, maybe something good happened. He goes on to say that some of the people in your church family annoy you simply for your sanctification. Take a sip to that one. Some of you guys are kind of looking around the room like, Some of you are annoyed by others, and it's actually for your purification and sanctification. Because if you're not annoyed by others, if you're not irritated by others, guess what? You're probably not really going to grow a whole lot. Or have the opportunity to, I just saw someone punch their neighbor. That's so rude. That's so rude. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I don't know where to go from here. Um, I love giving examples and analogies, and and seriously, the engagement in the pew is wonderful to watch from up here. The writer of Hebrews is literally calling us to irritate one another, to sharpen, to provoke, to stimulate. This is where challenge and confrontation come into play. We mentioned in the first week that part of the journey towards healthy community requires a a next step into challenge and confrontation. The original language alludes to a kind of confronting here. So I say this, if you or I haven't been confronted or challenged in a while in this community, you might be missing out on an opportunity for for formation into love. If you haven't been confronted or challenged by someone in this community in a while, you're probably missing out on an opportunity for formation into love. If you haven't been provoked, stirred, stimulated, and even irritated, you might be missing out on the opportunity to be formed deeper into a person of love. 
St. John Chrysostom said this hundreds and hundreds of years ago. For if a stone rubbed against a stone sends forth fire, how much more soul mingled with soul? All you might want today is affirmation and validation, but that isn't all you need. That might be all you want, and that might be something that you need, but that isn't all that you need. For a community in the first century facing immense physical persecution and external challenge, they needed to be challenged in order to face the challenge. For you and I to face the challenges of life, we have to be challenged in the day-to-day by our brothers and sisters. Because without confrontation, your capacity to grow and stretch is utterly diminished. Without confrontation, your capacity to grow and stretch is utterly diminished. Some of us haven't grown or matured in our faith journey in the last seven years because we haven't been willing or open to confrontation or challenge or for someone to step on your toes in love. And as I, 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 um, I heard Paula mention this a couple weeks ago, I just want to mention this really quick. Um, this, might, this might be hard, okay? So bear with me. Church hurt and accountability are two different things. Some of you have a legitimate hurt and pain from people who did not look or act like Jesus. And that is valid. Some of you were confronted because of sin and held accountable, and now you want to call that church hurt. That's not church hurt. That's accountability. That's called being on a team. And as I've said before, we need validators and affirmers, but we also need people who are willing to confront in love. But if you haven't validated a person, don't dare try to confront them. You hear me? If you haven't affirmed a person in their essence and identity, don't confront them. Some of us just confront and we don't affirm. And some of us just affirm and we don't confront. You've got to do both. Parents know this. And let's be honest, all of us as adults act like children sometimes. We affirm and we correct and confront in love. And if you're not receiving confrontation, you're missing out on the opportunity to grow. Okay. The family systems theorist who I've gotten into recently, Edwin Friedman, says challenge is the basic context of health and survival of a person, of the family, of a religious organization, or even of an entire species. He goes on to say, the more family members are motivated to achieve goals, the less their pain will bother them. Not Christian, family theorist, who was a Murray Bowen disciple, mid-90s, talking about the process of family. If there's not levels of challenge, then it's actually going to inhibit our survival and our ability to flourish. We have to be able to increase our threshold for pain as a community. 
have to. And this is the difference between a buddy in Christ and a brother in Christ. A lot of us just have buddies in Christ. But what we need are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You don't just need someone to listen to you. You do need that, but you don't just need that. You must have someone in your life who is willing to push you and question you. And dare I say, irritate you. One practice for us to engage in this posture is what I would like to call mutual discernment. Mutual discernment. This is actually relatively foreign in our time. Here's a thought. You should always go to someone willing to challenge you before you ever say, the Lord told me. You should always, if the Lord gives you some sort of vision to change direction or to do this or do that, you should always go to someone who is willing to confront you before you ever say, the Lord told me. And I hear this a lot. Because once someone says, the Lord told me, I'm like, what can I say? Oh, thank you. I did that because Emma's a hugger. I've had plenty of conversations with people who say, well, the Lord told me. And I'm like, well, what do I say now as a brother in Christ? You need to go to people before you say the Lord told me and say, hey, here's what I think the Lord might be saying, but can you just poke some holes at it? Because I'm a little all over the place sometimes. We need to practice mutual discernment. And I will go as far as saying some individual decisions in your life should be made with the community. You're trying to wrestle on, take a job or not? Wrestle with the community. You're trying to decide, should I move or not? Wrestle with the community. You're trying to decide on certain aspects of your life regarding finances? Wrestle with the community. Too many of our uh, experiences of wrestling happens alone. We should wrestle with the community. Because here's the deal. If you're only seeking agreement, you want a groupie, not a family. Some of us just want a groupie to affirm and agree with everything that we do. But I'm here to tell you, affirmation is actually about confirming what is true. And some of us are doing things and are acting in certain ways that actually is denying reality. We have to be willing to practice mutual discernment. Okay? So, we need to motivate or spur one another on toward love and good work. Now, here's where it seems paradoxical for us. Not only do we need healthy confrontation, but we also need encouragement and comfort. Encouragement and comfort. Here's where I'm going to soften up a bit, all right? Verse 25. And let us not neglect our meeting together, 
The Greek there is episynagogue. The gathering of the saints is, is a synagogue. It's a gathering. As some people do. And some of us are able, honestly, to relate to this. Neglecting meeting together. And he is saying, let us not neglect meeting together as some people actually do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now, the Greek word translated encourage is parakaleo, P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E-O. And it literally means to call to one's side as a way of bringing comfort, advocacy, and counsel. Some of you guys are naturals at this. My wife is one of those. I am not, to be honest. I'm working on it. I'm in process. This word is connected to the word paraclete, which is the word that John uses for the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, or the parakletos, the comforter, the advocate, the counselor, the encourager. David De Silva, who's done a ton of work around Hebrews and this idea of encouragement, defines encouragement as interactions, often verbal, that have as their goal helping the other person remain committed to a particular course of action or otherwise to sustain them in the face of some challenge. That is what it means to encourage. It literally means to put courage in or to make courage. One author refers to encouragement as spiritual adrenaline. You ever read those stories of like, Mothers lifting up cars off of their children? Wild. You know? Or like some random hiker taking on a bear. Adrenaline's pretty, pretty wild. Right? Heart starts, starts going fast and all this oxygen's coming into our muscles and all of a sudden we're just like a stud in a matter of a couple seconds. Encouragement actually provides spiritual adrenaline for us in the face of a challenge. It's the nature of encouragement. And in an age defined, for many of us, by anxiety and fear, quite possibly the one thing we need the most in community is encouragement. The primary cultural vision of community often is to be a place of expression, but the Christian vision is a place of encouragement. It's one of the unique attributes of the people of God. Yes, you and I need to be told that we are awesome. But you also need to be told that you can do it. You've got this. Stephen Covey, who famously wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said, treat a man as he is and he will remain as he is. Treat a man as he can and should be and he will become as he can and should be. Have you ever had a performance before, maybe back when you were a child, you're playing piano or you're in a concert or something, and you're nervous, your palms are sweaty, and uh, you've been practicing for months, and you're up there on stage, and you're like looking for mama. Where's my mother? And you see her, and she just gives you a little, or a little smile, and you're like, I got this, baby. Let's go. That's encouragement. Or maybe you were at, 
at a game, in a game, at the free throw line. It's March Madness. Now we're in April, but you're at the free throw line, and you're like, you know, game's on the line. Down one, just got fouled, and uh, there's about three seconds on the shot clock. You know, on the clock. Game's almost over. You're at the free throw line, and you're nervous. I mean, you're just like shaking. And you're like, okay, where's Dad? Dad, where are you at, Dad? We've been doing this in the driveway for the last 15 years of my life. And he looks at you, and he goes, But if it's in the 90s, he's got a camcorder like this. And you take a deep breath. And you shoot that shot. And you airball it, right? (laughs) But at least you were encouraged. You're like, I can do it. Might not, but I can. It's the essence of encouragement. Someone grabbing you by the shoulders in the midst of your life's challenge and saying, I love you. You've got this. I believe in you. You can do it. Now, here's the problem. Some of you have actually never experienced that in your life. From parents that just constantly berated you with critique. You were never good enough. Or from a spouse or a friend who just is constantly grinding your gears, tearing you down and discouraging you, or a boss that's a jerk. So when someone does do that, you, your first reaction is, man, that's trash. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I don't know you. No one's ever encouraged me before. And I get that. But I pray today that you know that first off, The greatest encourager on the face of the earth is Jesus himself. The Father is encouraging. And we must be a people of encouragement in our community, looking at each other, saying, I believe in you. You can do this. You will make it through. Do you ever wonder what the great enemy of love and encouragement actually is? It is indifference. Affirmation says you are blank. Encouragement says you can blank. But indifference says it's up to you. And is that not the narrative of our day? It's up to you. It's not affirmation. It's not encouragement. It's actually indifference. Encouragement focuses on the future, not just the past. And guess what? People are anxious about what? The future. Go walk around Barnes and Nobles. There are plenty of books about how people are freaking out about the future. But encouragement is a futuristic focus. And encouragement must come from someone else. You can't muster up courage. But encouragement requires another. And we constantly see this call in the narrative arc of the scriptures to be courageous. Be courageous. Why? I'm with you. Why? I'm here. You've got this. Why? I'm by your side. It's the impulse of the divine trinity. 
encouragement. I close with this. Charlie Dates. He says, trauma and trouble is going to happen. It's inevitable. But it is this fellowship that actually enables you to endure. Where we love one another, where we honor one another, where we speak truth to one another, to where we submit to one another, to where we motivate and encourage one another. It is in this fellowship, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of life, that you and I will be able to endure. There's no more of an encouragement than to come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly offered himself as a sacrifice, providing for us a meal that in a divine way is both representative and mysteriously intertwined with the Spirit of God, of the courage that he had to go to the cross. And I think for Jesus, it started back at the beginning of his ministry when the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And his father looks at him and says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And out of the wilderness, out of the Lenten season, he comes out in the power of the Spirit, the text says. And I pray as we walk out of Lent, as we even come to the table today and walk out these doors in a benediction, that we will walk out in the power of the Spirit as an encouraged people, motivated toward love and good deeds. If you would bow your heads.